welcome to this week's episode of uh, the mixtape with Scott. I am your host, um, Scott Cunningham. It is December 1st, 2023. I just had a wonderful interview with uh, Chen Han, who's a professor of economics at the University of California, Los Angeles, and uh, the author of many works in econometrics. Um and uh, including one uh, that I think some of you probably are familiar with, or maybe many of you. It's this uh, 2001 article in Econometrica that sort of was, I think, probably the first or one of the first real theoretical uh, econometric papers about regression discontinuity design and identification. It was with Petra Todd and Wilbert Vanderklau. Uh, Petra, who I've interviewed before, and Dr. Vanderklau, who I'm hoping to one day also interview. It was wonderful. I uh, hope you like it. You get a lot of great history of a really great econometrician uh, and just sort of walking through his life and the opportunities that he had and that um, uh, that, that he made the most of. Um, let's see. Other than that, I was going to make some jokes, uh, but I can't remember what I was going to do. So maybe just pretend I said something funny and uh, use that to sort of transition into this interview. Thanks so much uh, for all your support. We have uh, just a couple more weeks and season two of the mixtape with Scott will be concluded. I think we're going to have in the end uh, over these first two seasons, I think we're going to have about 80 episodes. If you can believe that it's kind of crazy. The, the sheer volume of this, uh, I guess I would just probably say one thing. I love doing these. Um, I really do. I love getting to connect with these people. I love hearing their stories. Um, I think probably some of you have figured out that I really love the history of the profession. Um, not just always the history of the thought, even. I just love the stories of the people. And I love the history. And I love the thoughts. Uh, so I like the biography of economic theory or economic economics, the biography of economics is what I've been thinking more and more is what I really love. And, um, and I couldn't do it if I didn't see every week that people were downloading the podcast. Uh, I guess it's possible. Some of you have some sort of automatic button that just automatically downloads, but I don't think it does because I've seen some that don't get downloaded very much. So I think it's gotta be more than just the, the buttons. Um, anyway, thank you. I uh, hope you enjoy this. Uh, don't forget to uh, like it and share it and all that stuff. I mean, you don't have to, but um, if you do like it, um, then you can send them this interview with Dr. Han. Uh, they'll, I think actually a lot of people will really love it. Uh, and I hope that some young people hearing it will kind of be inspired and think that could be me. All right. See you later. See you in a minute. Well, it's my pleasure today to have with me um, on the podcast, uh, someone whose work I've followed for a long time, but we've never had a chance to ever meet before, uh, Dr. Jinyong Han. But I don't know if I've said the, the first name correctly, Dr. Han. People call me Jin, the first syllable Jin. of my first name, because uh, that's easier to pronounce. And it uh, sort of reminds them of a cocktail, I guess. So, <laughs> <laughs> Jin Han. Okay, great. Right. And so can you tell us for the listener uh, who, uh, what your title is and, and who you work for? So I'm a professor of economics at uh, the Department of Economics, UCLA. Okay, great, great. All right, so I like to start these off with what's called an icebreaker. Uh, can you tell me a memory of a vacation that you had as a kid that you still sort of remember well enough that it kind of comes back to you every now and then? Wow, family vacation. Yeah, so, you know, I think I was very little. And it's not really a fond memory because uh, our family went on to a beach and somehow my sister got lost and we were frantically trying to find her. Oh, God. <laughs> and there was uh, an announcement from, I guess, uh, some kind of a lifeguard station. Like, you know, there's this uh, you know, girl who has this description, parents or brother, please come forward. <laughs> so oh, God. That, so go that is a <laughs> distinct memory. Oh, I mean, wow. <laughs> That's so I bet that was a panic. 
You're yeah, but you know, the more panic to my parents, I assume, because you know, I was just a little kid, so I don't exactly know what uh, what it was, right? <laughs> but you know, <laughs> yeah, she, I don't know whether she still gets lost. I'm, I'm sure that she does. <laughs> well, that's great. Okay, well, so tell me, where did you grow up, and what was your childhood like? So I grew up in Seoul, Korea, and uh, it was uh, not uh, a very it was a very typical childhood in South Korea. I, don't, I would say just go to school, come back. And school days were long. Mm. It was like that. And yeah, by the way, come to think of it, it was the military dictatorship. So in high school, we had to have this uh, military service. Oh. Uh, even in uh, college, we had to do this military service. So I have a couple of seeds in my transcript, and both were in military service. <laughs> 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 so, so, yeah. So I, I'm grateful that, that that when I applied for various graduate schools, they sort of ignored these couple of C's. I'm, I'm they sure did, they did. They like didn't care about the military <laughs> grades, well, right? <laughs> they're, they're like, maybe, maybe they liked it. Like, okay, yeah. this guy is not uh, going to be like, a general. That's why this guy is applying to grad school. He's not going to be a military. Exactly. So, right. Yes. So, so you said the days were, you said the school days were long. I didn't know that about Korea, Korea, Koreans. Um, yes. Yeah, so schools. So back, to, so in some sense, it's even worse these days. So I don't know. So school days are like, you start at eight or nine and you finish at uh, three. And so it, in that sense, it's not so bad, but uh, you take a bus to go to school and that's mm. like an hour. You take another bus to get back to school, get back home. That's another yeah. hour. Oh, so by the way, that's, uh, this might be the, uh, I don't know, uh, subconsciousness. Uh, the, this might have provided some subconsciousness to my research because back then, so Korea had traditionally in the 1950s and 1960s, there was this a strict hierarchy of high schools depending on the academic performance. But when I was going to high school, this was all abolished. And in order to make sure that all the high schools have the same amount of, I don't know, good kids and bad kids, let's put it this way, they, they used the randomization to put kids into different high schools. Oh. That, uh, that led to my long commute because oh. you would... Because you would think that, you know, that there will be some kind of a clustering of, let's say, uh, upper middle class parents into certain right. neighborhoods, right? Yeah. And, and if you actually, you know, the, decide uh, the, which school uh, you are going to go get into based on the proximity, then there's going to be this natural selection based on the, let's say, class, uh, yeah. socioeconomic class of the parents. And uh, in order to avoid that, they use this computer-based randomization device to mm. you know, send the kids and come to think of it, maybe that was the subconsciousness, <laughs> that the cultural subconsciousness that they have helped me when I did right. my research afterwards. So, Did you notice yeah. that as a kid? Your family sort of were like, oh, yeah, he got this bad draw, so he's got to go a really far distance. Y'all were sort of aware of it? Yeah. 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 You knew yeah, it was the rant. Y'all had... Y'all would talk about the, it being this random event or whatever. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, but you know, in some sense, I was lucky because I got into a high school which was supposed to, supposedly very good traditionally. Mm -hmm. So even though the kids who got into that high school were from all over the place, the teachers were very good. Uh, so they, the, they weren't randomizing the supply side; they were randomizing the demand side. Exactly. So I suppose uh, that the Korean Ministry of Education believe in the network effect more than right. the I don't know right. human capital effect. I right. Guess. right. So yes. Yeah, so, so it was a strange uh, 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 days, but they tried to you know make it as egalitarian as possible, which mm. I guess is a good thing. Mm -hmm. But uh, the bad you can't have everything right because some kids that would have to ride on the bus longer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. So you grew up in the city. You were yes, like, yes, I did. Yes. Oh, okay. So the yeah, it's a funny story. I grew up in the Gangnam district, which is uh, you know, the, there is this Korean pop singer who uh, whose song became pretty, uh, you know, famous. Like, uh, what, what was it? Gangnam story. Oh yeah, yeah, Gangnam style. Yeah, exactly. Gangnam style. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. So yeah, so Gangnam refers to a geographic location in Seoul. And I grew mm -hmm. up from there. So, oh, okay. What was that like? 
it's, it's, it's Gangnam just it simply means the south of the river, just like Rive oh. Gauche in Paris. And so this was a place where the, the, the many upper middle class uh, professionals would choose to live. Oh. So, so in that sense, uh, you know, that, so yeah, I, I, I'll be uh, uh, precise. Uh, so I'm not from the poor background. I'm not from the very rich background. I'm from the upper middle class background. But yeah. not, my father was a banker, then, so that, that he had a, he made a decent living, but mm-hmm. he was not part of this chevel or anything. Right. So, so that's uh, what my background is. Uh, I see. You know, what did your mom do? She was a homemaker, uh, but you know she had an important influence on me because her degree is college degree is from mechanical engineering. Oh, and because according to my mom, after she had aboard four children, she stopped working, working because this was too much. Yeah. So according to her, she was bored and she would teach me math when I was young. Oh, so, really? Yes. <laughs> that was her hobby. Was she the stronger math uh, yes. parent? Yes. Oh, wow. Yes, wow. yes, yes. So, so I still remember, you know, she's screaming at me for not understanding how the Pythagoras theorem works. Oh. <laughs> and I was in kindergarten, by the way. So, <laughs> <laughs> and so, so from an early age, you really liked the math, though? You really enjoyed it? Uh, I didn't. My mother liked, loved the teaching math to me. <laughs> I see. Okay, okay. <laughs> so, yeah. So, but, you know, so that was, I would say that's a little different from other kids uh in the sense that typically mothers are not that good at math, relatively speaking. Mm-hmm. But in my household, my mother was a stronger mathematician. Mm. And so she would allow, she would give me an easy pass if I didn't do well in, I don't know, literature. But she would be really disappointed if I don't do well. <laughs> she wasn't upset about those military grades? Ah, uh, she was fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, so when you go to high school, what was right. your, how big was your high school? Oh, 900 students per year. So that was a big one. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So okay. 2,700 students altogether. So it's a three grades are coalesced in this high school. Oh, three grades, right. sophomore, so, junior. Right, exactly. So senior. it was, a, we call it a 633 three system. So six years in uh, the elementary school. Uh, three years in middle school and, you know, three years, years in high school. Oh, I see. Okay. And so if I like could go back and talk to your teachers, you know, they've got 900 kids that they're, they're looking right. at, what kind of kid would they have said uh, that you were, what sort of things would they probably have sort of noticed about you that made you sort of stand out? So obviously because of my mom, I was pretty good at math. Yeah. I wasn't very good at physical stuff. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> so the uh so the, I guess uh, I was socially the, you know nimble enough to uh, I don't know avoid any trouble yeah. from any of the school bullies. Yeah. But you know so I I I think I was socially you know adept in this regard but mm-hmm. uh, I don't think uh, I would have stood out as a physically fit <laughs> Anyway. Sure, sure. <laughs> and I don't think I was really good in uh, literature anyway. I still remember trying to uh, struggling to understand the meaning of a poem because yeah. I couldn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Sure, that makes sense. Right. Yeah. So you so you really stood out as strong in mathematics amongst your student amongst your peers uh when you were in high school. I think so. I yeah. think so. Yeah. So you you end up going to so when you were in high school did you have any, like at the end of it did you have any notion of what you might want to be when you grew up? Not really, because you know I was just a kid, and my mm-hmm. my mother decided that I would be good at chemistry. Don't ask me why. Okay. <laughs> and my father said that I should go to economics department. Oh. And then you know that was it. So. The, <laughs> Did you have to decide in high school? I, I've been learning more about these international yes, differences. Exactly. You had to exactly. decide in high school. Exactly. So I have to decide what my specialty would be, major would be in high school. Mm. So I wouldn't be applying for a college. I would be applying for a department in a college. Ah, okay. 
So that I, I, I don't know whether that system is still there in Korea, but it was like that back in those days. Mm. And so my father decided that I should uh, be an economist. And in hindsight, it's sort of a residual legacy of this, again, military dictatorship. Because mm. so the Korean development, economic development is a fascinating story, but uh, this uh, military dictator, uh, could be described as a benevolent dictator to, be, to an extent that because he took it upon himself to develop South Korea in this rapid development phase. Mm. But then he was a military general, former military general, so he decided to use a bunch of economists as sort of a bunch of MBAs for mm. Korea Incorporated. Let's put it this way. Uh -huh. So uh, there was a lot of respect for the econ PhDs back then. Yeah. Before market economy took over the role of the government, substantially. What kind? Of, do you remember the names of any of the like, or where they were pull, pulling them from? Was it like particular universities and that they were bringing in these economists? By universities, uh, you mean the American universities? Because most or, of them were trained in the U.S. They were. Yes. Was it was it coming from like the Chicago school or? You know, I know that Chicago, I know that Chile brought in a bunch of Chicago economists. I think they were just all over the place. All over the place. Right. But uh, but one economist uh, who was, I'm told, influenced by the Chicago school, made an important transition from the government-led economic policy to the market-led economic policy. So mm. there was a, uh, you know, the pivotal moment when this particular individual uh, was uh, the favorite of some military general mm. and he convincing convinced that you know i don't know top uh, the president that this is not the way to manage the government uh, the economy any longer let's move right. on let's, something along that line so right so it uh, somehow the democratization of korea that it, was brought in in a pretty smooth way because these economists who had this liberal, by liberal, I mean the classical English liberalism as opposed to the American liberalism. Yeah. So because of this liberal, the, these economists came with a liberal attitude. They bit by bit convinced the, you know, the, you know, the powerful men mm. that, you know, democracy is not such a bad idea. And, was you know, was I, that when you were young or was that before you? Yes. Yes, but it was so. People claim obviously many people take credit for the democratization and stuff. But from my perspective, it was a gradual effort. Mm. I think it's a mm. unique, you know, uh, uh, perspective. So I don't want to push it too far. Sure, sure. I will end up, at, you know, the, the insulting some political scientists. Yeah, sure. <laughs> sure. But I'm just trying to, you know, the, the emphasize the important role that economists played behind in the shadow, like can convince convincing uh, various powerful men that let's let the market decide. Right, let's... right. Why, why do you think your dad thought econ would be the better fit? And, you know, why didn't you, why weren't you doing math? Why didn't you sort of say, I, I need to go and do a math degree because I'm so good at it? Not really. I thought of actually going to the law school uh, momentarily because I knew that uh, the private sector was becoming big. So mm. I sort of thought that, you know, with my math skill, I might be a good lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> Not yeah. in the criminal court, but, you know, you know, the, 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 the. Uh, but, you know, the, somehow the, I guess my father was still convinced that this old style, uh, the way of running the economy would persist for a quite a, would persist oh. for quite a while. I mean, it, we never had an in-depth conversation, but I'm sure that was his thinking. And besides, uh, he was a banker, which means uh, that uh, he was heavily involved in interaction with, uh, you know, Ministry of Finance and stuff. And he had to follow the, how should I say, directive from these ministries anyways. And so yeah. maybe he might have, his perception about the importance of the government may have been a little uh, bigger than in the reality, I guess. Ah, I see, yeah. got it. Right. Because that would probably create a lot of stability. If the government's going to continue to uh, use economists the way they have, that your dad right. might be thinking it's like a great job. Exactly, exactly. I see. Okay. So the way that uh, I that was asked by my father, not asked, basically he was, I, I was told by my father to go to the econ department was because he was expecting new, me to become the manager, one of the managers of the Korea Incorporated. Oh, okay. Got <laughs> it. Got it. So, well, so had you had any econ when he when he had said that when you decided to major in econ? Did you had you taken a class or something? 
in high school no there is no economics so i just oh. uh, i was like this is your career and i was like i'm a good you know back so this is not going to fly among the korean high school kids these days anyway but back then you know i was like a you know <laughs> very passive traditional right. the, the types of So, oh. the, so I'm coming from a different background, from a different area, era in some sense. Yeah, sure, sure, right. sure. So, so you go to Seoul. Did you ever think about going anywhere else? I don't know a lot about the universities in South Korea, but it's, uh, you end up going to Seoul National University. Yeah, it, uh, it was the cheapest one to get into. So, and it had a decent reputation. So mm. I didn't want to burden my parents with the tuition anyway. So Got it. Okay. I thought that it was a reasonable thing to do. How close were you to home? So I stayed at home uh, throughout oh, my did. college days, so, which is uh, you know, the, the, uh, quite a traditional thing to do, especially if you grew up in Seoul anyway. Seoul right. National is in Seoul, and it was reasonably close. Actually, I felt that it was closer to my uh, home, close to home than my high school, so oh, okay. <laughs> it Got was it. better. Oh, you were, the commute was less than it was in high school? I think oh. so. So you go to you go there and uh, you major in economics. Was there a point where you know because you ultimately don't end up becoming a banker? So was there a point while you were studying economics where you really began to like it just for itself? Uh, not really, because I uh, still viewed that uh, this uh, career path that my father set for me, like you know, become a manager of the national. I don't know, Korean incorporated. So I took it seriously and I wanted to do international finance or international trade because mm -hmm. that was the uh, career path for many Koreans back then. Mm. Because that Korea, that just like China these days or Japan back then, uh, was heavily reliant on the international trade right. for its development. So international economics was a big deal. Yeah, yeah. So, in fact, uh, so this is, so, the, so that's odd, but you know, the, the reason why I chose to go to the, the, the Harvard, among many reasons, is because, you know, Jeff Sachs was known to be a very, oh. you know, competent and very respected economist, international right. economist, and yeah. many of my professors at, uh, at in my alma mater said that, yeah, this is where you go to learn under him, under his oh. supervision. Except that he was too busy, you know, advising Russia and uh, <laughs> sure, yeah. he's very busy. And he was not around. So. Right, 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 right. <laughs> so. Yeah, sure. So it was yeah. not econometrics it, it, at Seoul National University. You weren't like falling no. in love with the. So did you no. take any econometrics while you were there? Yeah, it, it was just a mandatory course, but I didn't like it. So. You didn't like it. No, I didn't like it. It's, uh, so I guess it has something to do with the fact that they were teaching the old style, Cole's Foundation style, you know, large modeling. That type of the econometrics, oh, right? Yeah, I guess, yeah. uh, and I was so I guess that so in some sense the timing was right for me to, to so you were going to, to to ask me I guess about the causal inference and stuff like that the microeconometrics. Mm -hmm. So back when I was in graduate school, these uh, movements were making a slow small dent bit by bit. The microeconometrics, I wouldn't call it a revolution, but evolution. And mm. somehow I like the language and the, you know, modeling philosophy and approaches better than the old style, the, you know, Cole's foundation stuff. Even though later on, I realized that depth and wisdom, you know, you know, the associated with this Cole style, the, you know, approach, but that somehow I didn't feel the chemistry yeah. uh, with me and the, you know, the, the Cole's foundation style, the, you know, the modeling approach. So mm. I guess it was more chemistry than, you know, the philosophy or ideology that led me to like the microeconometrics as we now understand. <laughs> sure. Sure. You go to Harvard thinking you're going to study with Sachs, thinking you're going to be really specialized in an international, right. but you do this simultaneous masters in stats too, right? So that, that was uh, just a total accident. So I realized very soon that Jeff Sachs was not around. Uh -huh. because, and so I, I was like, okay, the, 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 what do I do with my life? I was walking and then Dale Jorgensen uh, the, was passing by and said, hey, you did pretty well in the midterm. Stop by my office. So I go to his office and he said, yeah, I like you. Are, you, know, you did well, but I, I don't understand. Did you take any statistics when you were... In undergraduate, uh, the, the undergraduate student, uh, I said yes, but Dale Jurgen says that your exam shows that, that, that you are good at math, but you're not very good at stats. So oh, I, 
So, the, which is probably true, by the way. Yeah, you could <laughs> tell. Else, you could tell yourself to you. You noticed that even about yourself. Yes, exactly. Which was probably yeah. true because I didn't quite know any statistics back then. I mean, I did take courses, but you know, it was just for the, the purpose of taking a course and getting rid of the requirement, uh-huh. but not really understanding it. And David Jorgen says that yeah, you have to take this master's degree. And then he called up the you know chair of the stats department, and suddenly. I was uh, doing the same thing as uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> it was crazy, but you know, there was a lot of I would call it a fate or destiny involved there because the chair of the stats department back then was Don Rubin. Oh no way! So oh, the, yeah, of course, I didn't even piece this together. Yep. So okay. so so all these things somehow coalesced together to make me who I am. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, because it's not like, uh, you know, as I was honest with you, it's just like, you know, I didn't have too much of a thought about being an econometrician. I wanted to become an international trade or international finance person, go back to Korea, become a manager of the Korea Incorporated. I mean, yeah. that was the plan laid out by my father. And you know, I, I didn't have any other option anyway. And so that's what I was going to do. And then suddenly, you know, somehow Dale Jorgensen that says that I should become an econometrician. And, I, and I'm like, yeah, he's like a father figure to me. My father's not around. So <laughs> right. Right. I'll do he, it. He did it. <laughs> yeah. And then I go to, you know, Sass department. There was Don Rubin. And I'm like, I'm getting this training from exposure from him. So here I am. <laughs> what you, so when you get exposed to Don Rubin teaching you, what, what really stood out to you at the time? Because you mentioned the philosophy of uh, microconometrics was interesting. What what were you what were you gaining from that exposure to him? So I don't know. He made everything sound so simple. Mm. And because back then I was trying to understand the meaning of instrumental variables because mm. I could follow the math for sure, but what does it exactly do? I could never understand because mm. other than the math. So the, so I guess that the back then instrumental variables was up. And what uh, year is it, Dr. Han, when you're, when you're in that matchup? Cause I had your Vita up, but I've already closed it. So I entered in 87. So 88 would be the year when uh, I was yeah, so being introduced. It's way before his. It's way before his work on the on IV. But he's he's teaching you IV in the class. No, 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 no. He was uh, just teaching the importance of the Neyman, uh, type Neyman's up, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. randomization and importance of that. And so that this idea of uh, some variable being random being important to elicit the causal direction that was already you know in his. Uh, Lingo, let's just put it this way, even though it was mm-hmm. not explicit. Yeah. So, yeah, so that was an important lesson. And I was lucky enough to have, uh, you know, Hito Imbens as my secondary advisor because oh Hito was, uh, you know, the, trying to learn this. So I was, it's a, all the stars were aligned for me, but if, in the sense of making me well prepared for this causal analysis because I Imbens so, would have just gotten there, right? He goes yes. there in 1989 or 1990. Yeah, something like that. So, you know. Oh. So he came in when I was still a grad student. And then what kind of exposure uh, do I have? Uh, other exposure. So, yeah. So the ITA for Josh Angrist. Yeah. Uh, so the, these people that had this special lingo that I wasn't expecting, but somehow uh, their choice of linguistics, I guess, mm-hmm. made an appeal to me because, mm-hmm. you know, instrumental variables and the asymptotic distribution and all that stuff, you know, I could understand the math and everything, but I could never follow the intuition. Right. And so these people were, you know, teaching me intuition. You were learning the intuition about IV when you got like when Josh and uh, Hito get there that you're really starting to get it right. You're getting the late theorem. You're getting the late theorem right at the beginning of it. Yeah, I guess so. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. I'm an early learner, early adopter in this sense, because, you know, it was still uh, circulated in this, I don't know, little lecture notes and stuff like that. Yeah. so my main advisor was Gary Chamberlain. Uh, so mm. in that sense, I'm coming from the more uh, traditional, eco- 
not traditional, traditional, because it's not time series, but, mm. you know, traditional microeconometric perspective and techniques. So I was attacking all this problem as a technical object. And again, I don't shy away from this description of myself as a technical econometrician, but mm. because of my early exposure to people like Hiro Imbens, uh, who became a secondary advisor to me and who's been a good mentor of mine, and Josh Angry is the same here. I mean, yeah. And, you know, Don Rubin, so I could, uh, you know, learn to piece together the intuitions underlying all these uh, wow. you know, discussions. So I was just lucky. I mean, oh, that's amazing. Right. So, the, so the, <laughs> yes. but you don't do this causal inference stuff immediately, right? I was just looking at it. seems like it, your first paper that I would kind of call like causal inference is that propensity score paper, 98 econometrica. But am I reading it wrong? You are correct, but you know, it's because of my advisor, main advisor Gary Chamberlain, was uh, coming from the technical side of you know calculating and characterizing the semi-parametric efficiency bound. Yeah. So I was uh, trained in this uh, the tradition. So my first publication actually was about the duration model and the heterogeneity and stuff like that, yeah. and the information content in there. And the Hedo was uh, the and I were having coffee at some moment uh, right before I graduated, I think. And Hido asked me this question. I don't understand why people run a regression of Y on the treatment indicator as well as covariates. That was his question. He can asked that sense? question? Yeah, to me. And he was mm. like, can you make sense out of that? I, of course, I didn't know what to do about it. So it took me a, a couple of years to get, be able to answer that from the perspective of efficiency consideration. That mm. is... Um, at the end of the day, the conclusion is that neither is efficient. <laughs> but, oh, oh, but oh. you know, in order to do that, I had to understand the efficiency aspect of the causal inference. But you know, the problem is that you know, I had to understand the language of the causal inference from that point on. So you know, even though my training was primarily focused on the technical side of econometrics, I had to learn these things uh, you know from the scratch. Right. I mean, the, the more detailed uh, technicalities of the you know causal inference from the scratch, and then you know here I am. I, that's uh, the first paper that I wrote. So what yes. was, what's the hard jump from being a technical econometrician to being technical on causal inference? What are what are the what are the real uh, what are the real obstacles that you had to kind of come over first? It's, it's, I would call that a language barrier because back then causal inference was a little more intuitive. Uh -huh. And the language was more randomized clinical trial, not in the traditional asymptotic framework. Mm. So translating everything into that asymptotic framework was the most difficult job. Oh. After that translation was done, it was pretty trivial, by mm. the way. So mm. the translation was the most difficult part. So, mm. Well, who was doing that at the beginning? Was that so what Imbens was doing? Or were you... No, you really were I think it was uh, that, that translation into the IID to a framework, even though it is uh, pretty obvious now, I think maybe I have something to do with that. Oh. I don't know that I, because I, I don't want to insult anybody because, uh, you know, I know that I, so many mentors of mine have influenced my subconsciousness. Uh, so I don't want to insult anybody, but in terms of actual usage of the paper, because uh, most of the causal inference was done in the, uh, permutation taste, uh, test type of the perspective. Yeah. So that's not really amenable with the IID framework that uh, was adopted in my propensity score paper. Mm. So in that sense, maybe it's possible that people were aware of this uh, translation, but they didn't think deep enough to, you know, got to, to think about the, 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 I don't know, merger of this, uh, you know, causal framework with yeah. the traditional semi-parametric, uh, you know, framework, I guess. So yeah. Did you enjoy that kind of work more than your other technical econometric work, or did was it all kind of? What, what I actually like the translation part a lot. Mm. So translation part is uh, quite the most difficult uh, job. So mm. what I love doing is to read other people's papers, mm. empirical papers, and then try to make sense out of that, and mm. then try to make a mathematical, uh, you know, the, the the symbol attached to that, mm. make a model out of it, and then making. Uh, sort of a you know the, the technical analysis. I love that you know, sort of the, the analysis a lot more than I don't know analyzing a given model that other people have already set up. Because, yeah, uh, sure, uh, sure. I think I'm uh, reasonably because my background having uh, the 
if there's, I don't know, applied people, let's call them applied people, yeah. Dan Rubin, Hiro Imbens, or Josh Angrist, as mm-hmm. well as uh, a very theoretical econometrician like Gary Chamberlain uh, as a main advisor. I think uh, that's sort of the background made me reasonably good at going back and forth between oh. this, <laughs> right? So other mm-hmm. there are other very able econometricians who are, uh, more onto the technical side, but I guess if you look deep into their, uh, you know, background, maybe all of their, you know, friendship or the mentorship network consists of uh, theoretical types, whereas yeah. mine was more like a, I don't know, the collection of everybody. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's the consequence. I love it, uh, doing this sort of the job better than the other one, I guess. Right, right. Wow. Oh, I'm so glad I did not piece this together because this has been sort of fun to learn it right in front of you. So, um, uh, this this uh, paper with Petra Todd and Vanderclaw. Right. Can you tell me a little bit for the sake of the listener who might not know what I'm referencing? Uh, this this comes out in 2001 in Econometrica on regression right. discontinuity design. Correct. C- could you tell me a little bit of the origin of that paper? How was that paper born? Okay, so this is because I attended a talk. Uh, on uh, Josh Angrist wrote a paper, uh, and his co-author presented that paper at Penn. Penn was my first job, by the way. Victor Levy was his name. And the paper used the Maimonides rule yep. to figure out the, you know, the, the impact of class size on the academic performance. And Maimonides rule is some uh, the, the ancient Hebrew scholars rule about the number of uh, TAs, I forgot the exact yeah. details. The cla- but it yeah. was that there is a cutoff uh, which uh, induced uh, the class to be, uh, you know, the the halved and you know the the, the the quads and stuff. But you know, so I attended the talk, and you know, Victor Levy is claiming that this is done by the uh, instrumental variables estimation, right? And and I said that's wrong. You I did. Yes, I I said I was I was young and stupid. So <laughs> in front of it, I, but you know, Victor was very generous. He was like uh, initially he thought that I was uh, making a, a you know structuralist sort of the you know comment. But then after the seminar, I approached him, accosted him, and you know explained that this cannot be right. This is not an instrument. And Victor was listening, and he said. Yeah, that sounds interesting, but do you have a solution? And I didn't. And, you know, the, the, I contacted Josh Angris. I, I may have called him or something. And Josh uh, d- did not like my, you know. <laughs> he liked your comment? And comment it, that it cannot be instrument. But I argue that it's not an instrument, but, but you are, you have something. You're onto something, but this is not an instrument was my, you know, argument. Okay, I've never heard this before. So why isn't it not just a fuzzy a uh, uh, fuzzy regression because discontinuity. because uh, the the point is that uh, regression discontinuity gets all basically all the identification at the discontinuity itself ah uh, yeah Where, okay. whereas by using the iv they were trying to get the information away from the discontinuity uh, and i i i argue that this cannot be the right way of using this data how could you and, tell what was it in the talk that was giving it away what were you thinking what were you bringing to that talk that was making you see that? Is this something in the past with Ruben or something? So I guess that, so there's a, there comes my, I guess, subconsciousness. So this has something to do with the college admission policy when I was young, by the way. So ah. Korean education is notorious for, you know, uh, you know, volatile admissions policy. Because, you know, the, for whatever reason, Ministry of Education decided to change uh, you know, college application policy every single year. Importantly, though, when I was applying for college, they decided to have an equivalent of an SAT, mm-hmm. but it's not a scholastic aptitude test. It was a scholastic achievement test. So you are tested a lot on a lot of subjects. They would come up with an aggregated variable, aggregated number, and then you apply to one one department and one college and stuff, mm-hmm. right? So let's say that your score is, I don't know, 102. Somehow you get accepted into that department. But if the cutoff from that department is uh, 102, and if your score is 101, yeah. then uh, you don't get into there. Yeah. And so, you know, people are wondering back then, many were, you know, the, just talking about the injustice about this, uh, you know, system, right. people's lives and fate did, uh, being dependent on just one, one point. 
But I thought that, you know, back then, as a young kid, I, I thought that this could be the source of determining the value of one department over the other. Mm. Because technically speaking, but, I mean, not technically, commonsensically speaking, the kid who gets, uh, gets a 101 and the other kid who gets 102, probably they're not that different from each other. Mm. So I would have thought that, you know, the whole thing that led one kid to be accepted by one department and the other kid accepted by the other is a practically randomized clinical trial. So I yeah. had that, you know, bagging feeling all along. Anyways, right. I guess that's the, you know, trigger in my part. I cannot speak for my co-authors, by the way. I don't know yeah. where Petra comes from. Where the week Petra and I talked about this for many days because we are, you know, totally confused as to where this source of identification comes in, right? After Victor Levy's talk, and then oh yeah, she's at Penn. Oh right, yeah, she was at yeah, Penn. yeah yeah yeah. I'm getting it. Okay, and then. I think that somebody else was overhearing the conversation. I, I think it could have been Andy Foster. He mentioned something along the line that, yeah, there was some visitor from NYU who gave a talk that sounded similar to this. That was Wilbur van der Klaue who was talking mm. about the impact of the, what is that scholarship, that the scholarship at this university right. was based on that. And he also thought that it was instrument. So all three of us- He thought that RD was an instrumental variable strategy, but you and Petra said- no, 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 so he also thought so, but even though, you know, you know, Wilbert was a little more willing that he was thought that it was instrument, but it's not quite an instrument. So he oh. was, anyway, so we decided because we already had some lunches together and everything, we thought that, you know, three of us should, you know, keep on talking. And then, you, you know, Wilbert, we, you and Patrick, at that point, Vanderklaus is involved. Exactly. I see. Okay. And three of us were like, all have personal experiences, I guess. In my case, I was thinking about my college application, I guess. And Wilbert probably was thinking about this data source. I don't know where Petra was coming from. Petra mentioned something about some uh, uh, employment law applied only to big enough uh, uh, corporations. So I you guys are actually, I did not realize this. You guys are actually grasping in the dark a little bit exactly. not not aware that this is regression discontinuity design exactly oh it was only presented in the by, by angerson levy as an iv paper exactly so oh. we are trying to understand so all of us thought that they, they are onto something yeah but all of us thought that you know away from the discontinuity there was something wrong about calling it the iv Oh, right. But then we didn't quite know how to express our idea. Yeah. So we just had to do the, do, do the math. And then I think it, in the middle, Petra or Wilbert uh, got a hold of the, this very ancient paper from some psychologist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Thistlevader yeah, yeah, yeah. Thistle Cam yeah, Campbell so, or something. Right. And then we read their papers and there was a whole lot of discussion about it, but it seems like that their discussion took the form of, so there's this time series model, which is like a threshold regression model. So mm -hmm. something like a regime changes if the, the X variable exceeds some number. So mm -hmm. in the time series model, it was all like a linear regression and mm -hmm. dummy variable. Mm -hmm. So I think that in the old days, they were using this sort of the time series linear regression sort of the approach. So, you know, that's how they understood the reg regression discontinuity. But we thought that, you know, at least in Victor Levy's uh, presentation of this Angris and Levy, he was not talking about that. He was actually literally talking about that discontinuity point implicitly. So we thought that, yeah, yeah so, you know, these old paper, old literature oh, were not yeah. zeroing on the true source of identification. And yeah. here we are. And somehow the, when we wrote the paper, some people liked it. We were like, whatever. So let's project it. And, some more and that's like why y'all focus on smoothness. Is that right? So because correct. I'm thinking to myself, I have in my notes, I was just, because now everything is changing a little bit in my head. This is so exciting. But like, um, so you actually were not dealing with an audience of economists and statisticians who thought, oh, the identification for RD comes from a randomized experiment. Nobody was talking about RD as its own thing at that no. time. They no, just had they right. just had IV, maybe. Right, right. exactly. Yeah. But, you know, it was a good co-authorship because we were just, like you said, you know, 
scraping for, I don't know, some straws in the dark, all of us were. But all of us, in hindsight, had a similar intuition. It's just that we couldn't express ourselves well. Somehow, I guess uh, each of us somehow finished other sentences. Mm. <laughs> that was a true co-authorship, and I enjoy that process, actually. Because, wow. you know, it's not... It, Co-authorship these days are so well planned. Like you know, somebody okay, you do this and you do that. So it's all well planned. But right. back then, also when three of us were talking, it was like we're not sure what we are doing. Oh, that's so <laughs> neat. Yeah. So oh, I, I loved wow. it actually. So the, the, that was really that was a very creative paper. It was very 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 much. You didn't know where it was going and. You couldn't, you had an idea. I mean, is this right? You sort of could see a little bit of it, but you weren't really sure this exactly. smoothness concept would come out. Is that right? Correct. So the smoothness is just like, a, so at least my subconsciousness is about, okay, this kid who got 101 and this kid, the other kid who got 102, they should be similar. That was it. But then right. how do you express it in terms of mathematics? I don't know. We are just talking bits of the, I don't know who came up with this idea of the smoothness mm. or continuity or I don't know that, but you know, that was it. So the, but yeah, so it was an interesting experience. I loved what, it. what was the most satisfying part of it when y'all kind of agreed on what the paper was, what was, what did you like the most about that whole experience? I like this idea of co-authors finishing each other's sentences and, you know, reinforcing and you know scaling up the other guy's thought processes i thought that it was the most rewarding part of this uh, paper re uh, writing i mean i had the luck and fortune of uh, working with other co-authors afterwards but you know these other uh, papers and projects were a little more planable let's just say yeah <laughs> whereas this one was completely <laughs> totally dark right right, <laughs> right. Right. So, ah, what an, an exciting thing. And it, it, so when did you notice that? I mean, it's perfect timing because uh, Josh's paper comes out in 99 and the QJE and Sandy Black's paper exactly. comes out in 99. So you've exactly. got this. And then yours, what was it, floating around for a couple of years before? I that? think so. Right. Something oh, like that. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Who handled so, it at Econometrica? Do you remember the editor? That I don't know, actually. I don't know. What did econometricians think about it? So econometricians, <laughs> theoretical econometricians think that, okay. <laughs> I mean, it's a, like I said, I mean, that, that for me, this is a translation job, right? Right. So I, that, you know, that I sort of got, in my mind, I was translating what the, these people, Sandy Black and Josh Angris, Victor Levy, these guys were doing, and later, uh, let's see, David Lee had a similar idea, but David's up, I think that David is a little easier because his paper came out after we had the, this methodology cleaned up as a map. That Lee Moretti and Butler paper? The uh, close selection paper that he Exactly, does? that's what yeah. I'm talking about. Because he, so he could already, uh, you know, zero in on this idea that discontinuity can give you something. Right. Whereas Sandy Black and, you know, Josh Angers, they were just, you know, scraping for some ideas yeah. in wow. some sense. So, but, you know, the, this translation, I mean, of their subconsciousness, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> they were onto something. They couldn't quite express it. We were onto something. At least in the beginning, we couldn't quite express it. I mean, I thought this translation was so exciting. Oh, it's so neat. Yes. I actually have completely forgot how empty the econometrics of RD was at this time. I just, and I knew it was, I knew, I think I was really thinking of that old educational psychologist guy that Thistleweight or Campbell yeah, had exactly. like created more of a framework of RD, but it's like, it really didn't, it really did not exist in the worlds that we're talking about at all, right. if at all. Yeah, because, you know, I think one reason is that they were using the regression framework right. to understand the RD. Yeah. But, you know, if you, I think that's the reason why framework setup is so important to understand the intuition, because 
they might have had the right intuition. I don't know. But if, yeah. as soon as you use the you know parametrically specified linear regression framework, yeah. then you deviate from this your own intuition. I think. Right. Right. So, right. so, so in that sense, uh, this uh, little translation job was so satisfying. And yeah, of course, uh, you know that. I hope that you know Wilbert and uh, Petra would that uh, would still have the fond memory of, of us finishing each other's sentences. Yeah, <laughs> because I still do. I why, love that. Why do you think, Chen? Why do you think you're so good at this translation job? What is? Where, where does that come from? Uh, am I good? I don't know, but you know, I guess I'm a foreigner, and so I mean, the language barrier is something that I need to overcome, oh, right? right? And early on, I. The one thing that I needed to overcome was that because I couldn't, you know, uh, parse out the, the how should I say the, the colloquial expression and everything, I had to, you know, to look at other people's faces and to, to, you know, notice their facial muscles twitching yeah. <laughs> as a signal of what they're thinking. So yeah. I guess I was uh, trying to uh, uh, learn from unanticipated signals. Right. <laughs> and maybe too, you know, that that being such a technical econometrician and needing to translate means, and you said you would read these applied people and try to figure out what they were doing. You're never going to be someone who is not going to stop until it's technically figured out. Yeah, so because, you know, it, it has to be, because uh, my job is to, to, to there is a, Find division of labor among econometricians, right? Somebody needs to set up the model. Somebody needs to set up the model, refine the model, and somebody mm. needs to, you know, analyze it. I don't know consistency, asymptotic normality, and all that stuff, and efficiency yeah. aspect as well. And somebody needs to figure out the potentially irregular, potential irregularity because of violation of this, violation of that. Oh. So there will be a lot of, you know, layers of work waiting even after the translation yeah. so i think a good translation is pretty important because that will obviate i don't know waste of time of other able econometricians i think <laughs> yeah 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 sure sure but you know looking at your vita it's not like it's full of causal inference you stay broad you stay fairly you know you're 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 working through a lot of technical microeconometrics but it's not like i'm watching uh, you know, you participating in that matching era, you know, of like a no. ton of the the nearest no, neighbor no. match, you know. So, so what 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 does the two thousands and the two thousand and the twenty tens? What where did you? How do you end up sort of choosing where you end up going on the? And where did you go uh, after that paper? So I guess I did some work on the panel data analysis. Mm. So long panel is uh, what I did because back then there was this frustration that in nonlinear panel data analysis, so, so, okay, getting back, let's dial back a little. In the linear panel data analysis, you can difference out the fixed effects and you can just proceed afterwards. I mean, right. you, so you should sometimes use the IV, you can just use the OLS, but at the end of the day, you can just difference out the fixed effects. In nonlinear models, it's not so easy. Sometimes mm -hmm. you're lucky and you are, you know, you are able to do that, but it's based on your luck. So uh, the idea was perhaps we can uh, treat each individual panel's history as a time series, short, but still a time series, and yeah. do something about it. That was what I thought could be useful to understand the non don't need a panel data analysis. So I spent some time on it. The other one uh, is, uh, that I uh, spent some time on it was the estimation of the production function. I mean, if this is really a, a research agenda of my co-author, uh, Daniel Ackerberg, who I think is now at Texas uh, Austin, I think. But you know, he was a colleague of mine at UCLA and he was a student of the, 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 the Ariel Pecos. And you know, mm. the, the, there's a fascinating aspect of the you know the production function estimation going all the way back to the duality. Mm. The duality, from the econometrics perspective, is a way of finding the a way of estimating the you know production function, even yeah. though capital and labor are endogenous. 
Right. So, so what you want to do is instead of regress the total cost on the, 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 the cost on the, you know, the, the factor price, and then you somehow invert it to find the, you know, the, the production function. Mm. So, you know, this is like a, you know, instrumental variables estimation, you mm. know, in its a primitive form in some sense. Mm. But, you know, I think that, uh, so this is my understanding of the, you know, plethora of the production function estimate these days. In the old days, when time series data were the king, then uh, you know you could find a decent exogenous variation of the cost of capital. Mm. Now, if you think about the, the application of the you know the cross-sectional analysis, the cost of the, the production function estimation, you have to you know acknowledge the fact, face the fact that well, capital flows reasonably freely, which means that the you know variation of the cost of capital is pretty limited. Right. That means that the IV estimation using cost of capital, if you're working with a micro data set, is probably uh, not going to be that successful, mm. which explains why Pecos's paper, you know, all the Pecos's paper has been so you know, influential. But there are lots of other you know, small you know, the, the issues that need to be tackled. And then uh, Dan Eckerberg was uh, a very voracious uh, consumer of econometrics and his job. Uh, Office was right next door to mine, right. and on top of that, he was a he loved drinking beer and he loved playing <laughs> golf, both of which I loved. And you know, one thing led to another. I did some you know research of production function estimation. So yeah, yeah that I actually liked uh, doing the research up uh, in the on outside of away from the campus as well because uh, that's what Dan Ackerberg taught, uh, taught me. That is, you can do research by <laughs> you can do it drinking anyway. beer. You can do it playing golf. You, you guys exactly. just play golf and do it. Yeah. Oh, that's so neat. That's so neat. Wow. Well, so, you know, so what are you most excited about right now? What are you, what are you sort of see in the next few years of your, uh, or, you know, what, what do you see this next leg of your career sort of being about? So I am, you know, getting back and forth, but that I am uh, looking at panel data uh, analysis as a primary source of my inspiration. Mm. I mean, it's probably because Gary Chamberlain, my uh, main advisor, was primarily known for his panel data analysis anyway. Right. But Mike, so in his case, he wanted to use it as a source of understanding APT, arbitrage pricing theory. In yeah. my case, I'd like to understand it as uh, a way of understanding the you know, usefulness of the big data. Because... Mm. I think that there is uh, this excitement about uh, this uh, large size of the data, which is typically microdata, but yeah. I have some doubts as to whether it has any information content for dynamic models, especially when there are, you know, aggregate shocks involved. So, so what I'd like to understand is uh, the interplay between the uh, micro shocks, idiosyncratic shocks, as well as the aggregate shocks, and mm. see if the, you know, the, when and if the big data can be useful because big yeah. data by definition is a cross-sectional variation of microdata. So that's what I'd like to understand. Yeah. Whether it's going to lead to anything substantive or not, I don't know. But yeah. It will. yeah. <laughs> that's great. Well, this has been really, really nice. I I uh uh am so excited that that we got to talk and and I got to hear your story and and see how it uh, you know how it kind of wove. I did not know that story about the the, the famous 2001 Econometrica. Uh, that is really really neat and has just added a added a window back to that era. Um, I want you to, to kind of end on this. I, I, I'd like you to sort of imagine there's like a young person listening right now, and they are very interested in econometrics, but they're maybe a little bit early. Maybe they're like third, fourth year or whatever, or maybe they're mm -hmm. junior faculty. And I was wondering, you know, if you could imagine having a beer with them or playing golf with them yeah, uh, yeah. and you sort of are list, you know, you're sort of watching a young person right. uh, thinking about having a life as an econometrician. What do you think that would be the kinds of things that you'd probably tell them uh, that you, you sort of, you, you sort of think would apply to anybody? Well, <sighs> Some of my success is surely due to my luck. I mean, basically, I was at the right place at the right time. Many of the, you know, the good natured, the seniors, somehow decided to help me or somehow decided not to get offense when I ask questions. Yeah. I mean, 
I mean, Josh Angus, when I called him up and asked for it, like, you know, to, to get over my habit, he was yeah. actually encouraging me to think in this direction, which mm. was important. So I guess, uh, on the other hand, that, you know, I guess uh, I played no small part in finding my own mentor anyway, somebody mm. who, with whom I had some chemistry. Somehow mm -hmm. I had some chemistry with Imbens. Somehow I had a chemistry with Josh Angrist. Mm. And, you know, I guess exactly because of that, they could, you know, tolerate me, <laughs> me uh -huh. I guess. So I guess uh, finding your own uh, mentor, finding your own chemistry might yeah. be very important. Right, right. Because that way you can have a real conversation with uh, without the... Uh, worrying about i don't know hurting each other's feelings and right. you know things right. like that right and so luck plays some role for sure because uh, you know it, it's not like you know that i actively sought after all these mentors but you know on the other hand i had to you know introduce myself and everything and so it's an interplay of luck and your own initiative in making friends with the people who might inspire you yeah 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 sure well, that's exciting. That's exciting. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I try to, uh, I know it's top of the hour, but uh, it's been a real joy to hear your story. And um, I just want to say thanks for being on the show. Uh, well, thank you so much. So, thank you so much for listening. Yeah. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Gotta see you soon.